This is Dan Moynihan, and welcome to another episode of Christian Deep Dive, a podcast where once or twice a month or so we will go through some deep issues in the Christian faith, either some current events or just some issues that I think are important for every Christian to know, for every Christian to be able to dig deep and understand the concepts. Today we're going to talk about the proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm excited to do this because this is one of my favorite topics, and it certainly was something that helped me early in my Christian walk, that helped me understand that everything about the Christian faith revolves around whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. He's the only one that dared claim such a thing. You have all the people out there, such as Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, they're all still in their graves, but Jesus Christ is the only one that dared claim all of, his, all of his things that he promised, all the things that he said were based on the fact whether he rose from the dead or not. And of course, that is why throughout history there were many people that tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to go into that a little bit because I think you'll be very excited uh, that there is circumstantial evidence out there that would stand up in any court today. So let's begin. First, there was a guy named Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was a Harvard professor. In fact, he helped found the uh, law school at Harvard. And Simon Greenleaf put aside his study, his practice. He was determined to prove that Christianity was false. And yet, as he started to get into the evidence, within three weeks or so, he was on his knees asking Jesus to forgive him because as he dug into the evidence, he realized that there was more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than Napoleon conquered France, as he put it. There was also a guy named uh, Frank Morrison who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? He was another skeptic who, once he looked into it, realized, oh no, there's plenty of evidence here. C.S. Lewis, everybody knows who C.S. Lewis is. C.S. Lewis admitted that he was dragged screaming and kicking into faith in Christ because he didn't want to believe it, but as he dug into it, he realized it was all true. And more recently, most of you have heard of Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell wrote the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. A very good book. Again, it lists a whole, I highly recommend it if you want to dig even deeper into this. Um, what was it that made these men totally change their view? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, that's what we're going to get into. Again, the idea of a historical Jesus, that's not an issue. Uh, Pilate, Paul of Tarsus, Caiaphas, Jesus, they're all mentioned by extra-biblical writers. One is a historian that everybody follows named Josephus. Josephus wrote of these people. Uh, and so the idea that Jesus existed himself None of the critics or skeptics debate that. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus existed. The question is, did he really rise from the dead? Now, let me get back to Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf, who lived between 1783 and 1853, he decided to put Jesus' resurrection on trial by examining the evidence. Greenleaf, as I said, helped to put the Harvard Law School on the map. He wrote a three-volume legal masterpiece, which is still used today. It's called The Greatest Authority in the History of Legal Procedure. It's called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. Actually, the U.S. judicial system today still relies on the rules of evidence established by Greenleaf. So for this legal effort, this legal expert, the case for Jesus' resurrection was so compelling, he had no doubt it would hold up in a court of law. 
if you ever want to see it, I think it's still on Amazon. He wrote a book called The Testimony of the Evangelist. And in that book, he documents his evidence supporting the conclusion. What I'm going to do today for you is break down some of that evidence uh, and show you how exciting it is that uh, we can have, we have a risen Savior. We have a Lord that is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And there's enough evidence out there to convince any skeptic it would hold up in a court of law today. And that's what Greenleaf found. Now, the reasons the world says Jesus did not really rise from the dead, let's get that out there first. Back then, as you can see in the Gospels, one of the theories was that the body was stolen by the apostles. And the other theory was that he wasn't really dead. And this is something that became popular in the late 60s. Uh, there was a book written, and it detailed what was called the swoon theory. And in that theory, when Jesus was on the cross, and the Roman soldier lifted up uh, the, when he said, I thirst, and gave him a, a drug to sip on, that basically it, it, uh, it feigned death that made him look dead, that he wasn't really dead. Um, and and he was put into the, he was put into the uh, grave, and he woke up. And if you examine the evidence about that, and we'll get more into this, you'll realize how absolutely ridiculous that would have to be for that to actually occur. So let's look at some other things. If Jesus' was body was stolen by the apostles, uh, don't you think the body would have been found, or he would have eventually, you know, the body would have been found and paraded. You know, there was a madman search for that body after uh, it was found to be empty. Don't you think that that body would have been found, and as they found it, they would have paraded it all through Jerusalem, showing, see, he's, he did really die. And as far as the swoon theory, think about it. You're inside this tomb. You're wrapped like a mummy, and I'll get into that in a moment. You're wrapped like a mummy, but somehow you managed to break out of that. And if you do that somehow in this emaciated state where you've got all these wounds, uh, that you are able to move a two-ton stone, not make any noise, sneak by a Roman guard, uh, and then somehow proclaim in this emaciated state that you've risen from the dead, uh, Greenleaf realized how preposterous that was. So let me get into some of the other positive evidences that Greenleaf was able to talk about. One of them is very interesting. They're all interesting, but one that really caught my eye was the women eyewitnesses. Keep in mind that there is evidence that the four Gospels written are authentic. That's not really, again, people don't argue that those were written by the people that we say they're written by. The question is, did he really rise from the dead? But one of the things that really struck Greenleaf is everybody realized that back then women were considered second-class citizens in Bible times. Their testimony was not even allowed in court. And yet the Bible tells us that the risen Christ first appeared to Mary Magdalene and other women. In fact, even the apostles didn't believe Mary when she told them the tomb was empty. The fact that these writers would use women as a witness just goes to show that it had to be something they actually believed because if they were going to make up an account, it wouldn't even occur to them to use women as an eyewitness. They just wouldn't think about it. It was just totally out of their culture to say such a thing. Um, another proof would be how many people died uh, for Jesus. One of the common tactics skeptics try to use to deny the physical resurrection is to say, well, since none of us were there, no one could really say what happened 2,000 years ago. 
While there's some truth to that, it's an illogical statement against history. Here's why. None of us were around when George Washington was president, so technically we can't prove he was president. However, if there's enough historical document to say he was president and, and collaborated historically by enough eyewitnesses, which we can read about, uh, combined with no documented claims denying these facts, logic demands that we would accept that presidency, wouldn't we? To deny this would be not really logical or scientific. The same holds true for the resurrection of Jesus. Skeptics, of course, have a tendency to discount this because it's just the Bible is just a religious book. But that's not really true, as I've said before. In addition to the Word of God, the Bible documents is also to be a book of history. And there's plenty of historical evidence to show that the Bible is true, which might be the subject for another topic. And again, as I was saying earlier, as I started this section, people were willing to die for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, if you read the book of Hebrews, if you read Josephus, if you read some other things, almost all the apostles died some horrible deaths, going to their graves saying that Jesus did rise from the dead, that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, the only person who did not was the Apostle John, who lived to be on the Isle of Patmos, and he wrote the book of Revelation. He was given a revelation of the end times and what it was going to be like. The rest of them died horrible deaths. Now think about it. If somebody was trying to fake an account, if somebody was trying to uh, you know, distort the truth, would they be willing to die for that? Would they be willing to go through an excruciating death? And yet they did. And so that, that again was another stack of evidence that Greenleaf saw that said, wow, you know, all these guys died horrible deaths, taking this to their graves that, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And that had a lot of weight for him. So let's go back now to a couple other things that uh, uh, we, we can talk about here. Let's talk about the lives of uh, some of the apostles as their changed lives are another proof. James, the brother of Jesus, he was openly skeptical that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet later, James became a courageous leader of the Jerusalem church, even being stoned to death for his faith. Again, why would he do that? Uh, and the, risen, the Bible says that the risen Christ appeared to him. What a shock to see your own brother alive again after you knew he was dead. Um, I think James and the other apostles were effective missionaries because people could tell these men had touched and seen the risen Christ. And like I said earlier, why were these disciples willing to be tortured and killed for a known lie? You don't need a degree in human psychology to realize that people don't die for a cause they know to be false. I can't stress that enough. This was very strong in the Greenleaf thing. So, what was their motive? Lies or deceptions are typically done for some selfish motive. So preaching the resurrection of Jesus was not going to bring them wealth, fame, status, or popularity. It would only, in that culture, the Jewish culture, keep in mind, it would only cause them to be hated, scorned, prosecuted, excommunicated, imprisoned, beheaded, tortured, and crucified, as history records. So again, what could possibly be their motive? Just to save face? Nah, that's not logical. You know what the answer is? It was the truth. They actually saw the risen Jesus. And so just taking this point even a little bit further, how do 11 ordinary people pull off such a hoax? 
Remember, this hoax would have triggered thousands of skeptics per day to convert to their following their scam, if you want to call it that, and redirect the entire world to even eventually change their calendars and establish their hoax character, Jesus, as the best known figure in all of humanity. How could they pull something off like this without ever getting exposed, without offering a deathbed confession or even admitting that it was a hoax under torture? The answer is, it must not be a hoax. They actually saw the risen Jesus. I think some of these things are, are exciting if we get to them. So Simon Greenleaf was somebody that I really uh, paid a lot of attention to. Um, I've started reading some of his book. It's very deep. It really, it really, goes, it really gets into it. Um, let me tell you one of my favorite ones, and that's from John chapter 20, verse 6. And verses 6 to 8. Um, and let's read that together. Then comes Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeing the linen cloths, then went in also in that other disciple, which first came to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. He saw and he believed. What was it that he saw that made him believe? Well, this is where it really pays is the name of this uh teaching is called deep dive. This is where it really pays to understand the culture a little bit. Back then, how did they do burials? Well, keep in mind that uh, many, many years before, um, the Israelites were in Egypt and they learned many of the Egyptian customs. And one of them was when someone died, they would wrap them in the linen straps and uh, they would Unlike the Egyptians, they would not cover the head. The Jews were suspicious of covering the head that way, so they would put a face cloth over it. And so anytime someone died like this, they would wrap their, their arms and their legs and their torso in linen strips. Now, many of you, when you were in grade school, would make paper mache. What was that like? Well, you would take strips, remember, you would put it in the paste, and then you would wrap it around something, and, and what would happen to it? Well, it would harden. And as we see in the Bible accounts that these two uh, rich fellas <coughs> came and they wanted to give uh, uh, Jesus, his, their um, Joseph of Arimathea wanted to give Jesus his tomb. And so they asked for the body and the Bible tells us how they wrapped linen strips and wrapped it around. They followed this custom, in other words. So Jesus's body was wrapped this way. We saw the same account when Lazarus came out of the tomb earlier when Jesus had resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He came out and Jesus said, unbind him. What did he mean by that? He meant take those strips out. So Lazarus was coming out walking probably like Frankenstein, stuck in these uh, linen strips. And they had to unbind him. So Jesus was wrapped the same way. And so if he was wrapped that way and he was laid on a slab in the tomb, what would happen? Well, that whole thing around him would harden, just like a cocoon. But keep in mind, they didn't wrap the face back then, so there would be nothing there but a face cloth laying to the side. When it says that Peter went down with John, and John was the younger one, keep in mind, Mary, Mary Magdalene came to them and said, hey, I've seen the Lord. What happens? Peter, who was quite much older, and then John, who we figure was some, anywhere between 17 and 19, went running down to the tomb where the tomb was. And John was being faster, was the first one. It says he looked in, he saw, and believed. There's something that he saw that made him believe. And if you follow the course of, of how they buried people back then, what did he see? 
he saw this empty cocoon with no head sticking out uh, sitting there. And that immediately made him realize that, okay, something passed through, that Jesus must be alive. Jesus passed through this. And again, Mary thought that the body had been stolen, but she didn't go inside. Peter was the one that went in and looked in that, and he saw that. And I think that that's, uh, when I first heard that, I just thought that that was really exciting and it was important. I would call it the linen that could not lie. And certainly that's true. Uh, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, keep in mind there's about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes and spices that we see in John 19, 39 to 40 that they take and they wrap around. And so there was 100 pounds of spices on these wrappings. So again, let's get back to that swoon theory earlier that uh, came out in the late 60s where people said, well, he just woke up from a drug and he, he would have had to fight his way out of a hardened cocoon with 100 pounds of these spices and aloes on him in that emaciated state where nobody doubts he had, he had wounds in his hands, in his side, in his feet. He would have been beaten. Uh, the fact that he could do that, uh, again, the more you examine the evidence, this is what Greenleaf said. Greenleaf said, you know, had Jesus revived and exited the tomb, he could not have left the writing, the wrapping undisturbed. That's basically something right out of his book. The cocoon was empty. And so to me, this is a very exciting and interesting thing. The other, the other thing I want to throw out to you that Greenleaf found as well is the fact that the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. And we, we know that to be the case because um, the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and they said, hey, that deceiver said that he was going to rise in three days. So the, the first, you know, the, the second lie would be worse from the first, as they put it. So Pilate told them to take a guard and go. That means if you study Roman uh, history and, and the Roman legions and things like that, there had to be at least six Roman guards there. Now, one of the things that the accounts say that was uh, said, well, the, the, the soldiers fell asleep. The soldiers fell asleep, and uh, that's when Jesus' apostles were able to come and steal the body. Well, again, l let me tell you what Greenleaf found about that. First of all, the penalty for falling asleep uh, if you were on Roman guard duty was quite severe. It was punishable by death. In fact, the captain of the watch would come out of the headquarters every night and go around, and he would check all the places that were happened to be guarded that night. If he found you to be asleep, he had a rather uncomfortable way of waking you up. They would set fire to your toga. Uh, one does not sleep all that comfortably knowing that that could occur. Plus, these guys were efficient killing machines, efficient killers, if you study what it took to become a Roman legionnaire. So uh, the idea, Greenleaf realized that the idea of timid apostles who were afraid and scattered, even at the time of the trial and the time of the crucifixion, uh, would take on these Roman soldiers to perpetuate a lie was was laughable. And even if you tried to say that that was that was true, um, this thing was this tomb was a they estimate this rock this that they rolled in front of it was weighed about almost two tons. And not only that, it was sealed with the seal of Caesar. Now the seal of Caesar, this is very important. Uh, because it was a Roman guard, it was a Roman situation. It says that they put the seal of Caesar on it. What they would do is they would take a string with the seal of Caesar on it and they would attach wax to the rock and to the side. And 
If you broke the seal of Caesar, all Rome would be after you until they caught you. And so again, the apostles, the idea, Greenleaf said, the idea that the apostles, A, could overtake the Roman guards, and B, would dare break the seal of Caesar, which everybody knew what that was all about, was absolutely, you know, preposterous. The other one, the last, I guess where I want to finish up, there's so many, and I, I invite you to go to the internet, because if you just put in the proofs of the resurrection and go to the internet, uh, folks, you'll find so much more if you want to dig even deeper into this. But the other one is the change in the Apostle Paul. Let's talk about him. He was originally called Saul of Tarsus. He was somebody that was persecuting Christians. He was there when Stephen was stoned, uh, one of the first Christian martyrs. Uh, he was going about persecuting uh, everything there was about Christianity. He had a special task to go to Damascus and destroy the Christian faith there on the way the risen Christ appeared to him, knocked him off his high horse, so to speak, and he became blind. And after that, um, he was healed, and he, was, uh, he became, obviously, the greatest biblical writer we have. All of Paul's letters are there. And Greenleaf examined his life. He's a historical figure. The fact that someone would radically change like that, uh, he realized that his account had to be true. There was just no other explanation for it. So, in summary, if you take all of these, and again, I've just, uh, I try to keep, to keep these podcasts, you know, between 20 and 30 minutes. Um, there's so much more that I invite you to go out and look at, but just let's, let's summarize what we've looked at here. Uh, the fact that uh, the miracle of the grave clothes, that's a strong one for me. The change in the apostles, the change in uh the Apostle Paul. I, I didn't even mention the change in Peter. You know, Peter who fled the scene, uh, who was, uh, you know, who denied Jesus three times. All of a sudden, uh, he's he does this bold sermon after Jesus rose from the death from the dead, and the change in the Apostle Peter, the change in all the apostles, the fact that they were willing to suffer martyrs' deaths, the fact that the body was never found, and of course. Uh, Rome and the Jewish leaders have every incentive. You, may, you imagine they must have turned that place upside down. They wanted to find, if, if the body had been stolen, they would have found it and paraded it all over Jerusalem to show. And that didn't happen. And then just the fact of what has happened historically, the fact that this has gone uh, to become the true and only faith and how strong it, you know, how strong it became and, and what it is and you just can't deny it if you just dig deep into it. See, Simon Greenleaf realized that the reason people didn't believe is because they just dig in, didn't dig into it. He didn't believe it, but once he dug into it, he realized it was all true. Same for C.S. Lewis, same for Josh McDowell. And it can be the same for you, too. If you're skeptical, I challenge you, I dare you, to dig into the facts of the resurrection of Christ. You know, I've talked to people in my lifetime where I've challenged them on this, and they've actually been honest and told me, no, I'm afraid what I'll find out. And why do they say that? Because they know if they, like C.S. Lewis, if they actually come to understand the truth, then they have to make a decision. Once, you know, it's one thing to be a skeptic and say, oh, that can't be true. It's another thing to dig into it and look into it and come face to face with the facts. And then you got to make a decision. You can't say it's not true anymore. Once you realize it's true, you say, Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Um, and so do I follow him or not? Because it's not a matter of skeptic, skepticism anymore. It's a matter of you making a choice. 
you know, speaking of C.S. Lewis, and I'll close with this, um, a lot of people have quoted that famous thing he said where um, he mentioned that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, or if he wasn't, he had to be a liar uh, or a willing deceiver because there is no middle ground. And people used to say, well, what do you mean by that? How many, well, let me explain it this way. How many times have you heard talk to somebody about Jesus and they say, well, I don't believe he was the son of God, but I believe he was a good man. He was a good man. That should be immediately a clue to you that they've never investigated Jesus at all because no good man would go around saying he was the son of God. No good man would say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. No good man would say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. See, no good man would do that. Only a man who would say that is one who was exactly who he said he was. And so that's why Lewis said he's either a liar or a willing deceiver or exactly who he said he was. And friends, if you examine the evidence, I think you'll see that he's exactly who he said he was, our Lord, our Savior. Once again, this is Dan Moynihan, and I thank you for listening to this podcast. I will be back in a couple of weeks with another one. Thank you.